don't let go of that steering wheel, and don't spill your dinner down your shirt. I want you guys to contain your excitement, but it's your friend Chris again from the One You Feed podcast. And I wanted to tell you that thanks to the reoccurring love from iTunes and a recent mention in Oprah Magazine, the One You Feed podcast has a lot of new fans. So I want to welcome all of you. And there's so many great episodes coming up soon. I just wanted to remind you to subscribe. And if you have any friends or loved ones you think might benefit from or just simply enjoy the podcast discussions about habits, meditation, depression, happiness, psychology, the list goes on and on. We'll be sure and recommend that they subscribe to the podcast as well. Shouldn't I have learned this in Sunday school? Why am I learning this from the road manager for ACDC? Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Pete Holmes. He's an American comedian, actor, writer, producer, and podcaster. And in this episode, Pete and Eric discuss his book, Comedy Sex God. Hi, Pete. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on. We're going to discuss your book, Comedy Sex God, as well as some of the things I've heard you say on your podcast. But before we do that, let's start like we always do with the parable. There is a grandfather who's talking with his granddaughter, and he says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops and she thinks about it for a second and she looks up at her grandfather. She says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, it's funny. I knew that you were going to ask me that, but I hadn't thought about it until just now. Uh, but I was just driving in my car. <laughs> I was thinking about how I would never get a bumper sticker because there's no way that I feel all of the time, <laughs> if that makes sense. It's, a, it's the same reason I wouldn't want to get a tattoo. Yeah, me too. There's so many Pete's, as I'm sure there's so many Eric's. There's just so many of us in there um, to sort of add on to the parable. A lot of the art that I uh, enjoy and certainly the art that I try to make is trying to honor the idea that there are so many of us in there. And I think it's preposterous when people speak with such authority on who they are or even how they feel without acknowledging that it's just who they are in the moment or how they feel in the moment. But I was literally just thinking that. Like I was once tempted to get the bumper sticker, don't believe everything you think, right? And I was like, that's fine. But I don't always feel that way. And I don't want to be the car that represents that idiom. You know what I mean? What if I cut somebody off or something? Like then they're embittered towards that perspective because I was driving poorly that day. Because as much as I'd like to be a person who drives courteously, sometimes I'm not. Like I, I like to delete those files from my memory so I can feel good about myself. But the truth is, is sometimes I make bad choices on the road and I don't want a, a beautiful thought like that stapled to my bad behavior. <laughs> so I was just kind of thinking about that. And I was also just talking to somebody just this morning about the way that the brain works. And there's the oldest part of our brain, which is the lizard brain, which is what's responsible for eating, killing, and mating. And then there's the newest part of our brain, which is unique to humans. A smarter person would know what these parts are called, or somebody with a better memory, maybe. <laughs> but that's the part that's responsible for like communal thinking and spirituality. And uh, not just like, should I eat it, have sex with it, or kill it? But it goes, is it good for the community 
to take this or to save it or to nurture it or to grow it or to harvest it, all these things. So this parable is is very wise and it's it's certainly worthy of having a podcast as you do, because there clearly are literally different impulses coming from the same brain. So that's what that means to me is even when it comes to something like alcohol or um, pornography or binge eating, just eating a, a whole bag of Doritos or something, it's very helpful for me to consider that those things are coming from my brainstem, this very scared, sort of um, fearful, horde mentality part of me that was installed to keep us alive. It's, it's one of the reasons why we evolved and stuff, but it just sort of wants to light up the pleasure centers as much as it can. But um, it's not a thoughtful part. It's not a wise part. It's not the best part of humanity. It's just sort of like the base part of humanity. And that is the bad wolf or whatever. Although I'm sure I, I can't be the first person that takes issue with bad and good in that parable. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you know, sometimes we need simple language like that. So another part of me is okay with it. <laughs> so that is the bad part. And the good part definitely needs conscious attention. That's why I think it's so interesting that something like compassion meditation works, just taking um, a moment to consider the people that you love or the people that you forgive or the people that have loved or forgiven you and how that can broaden your scope and the way that you behave in the world and the world that you live in, literally the way that you perceive the world. That's how I take that. I mean, we can especially these days, have pretty much any food delivered. We can have any sexual fantasy acted out in front of us on a computer. We can drink and weed is legal so many places. We can, we can stimulate our pleasure centers, but that is not the point of life. In fact, it's, it's really a passion of mine to try and point out that that's a fool's errand, is to try and just be on a beach eating ice cream, is, is an example I've used before. Because I, I was on a beach eating ice cream, and you think like that's it, right? I mean, you, you've done it. You're in Hawaii. You're eating an ice cream sundae, but that is not what life is. This is me paraphrasing Ramdas. Basically, is you finish the ice cream, and now you want water, and then you have the water, and then you have to go to the bathroom, and then you go to the bathroom, and then you're bored, and you watch TV, and and then you're tired, and then you sleep, and you wake up, and you're groggy, and you have coffee, and you're perky, but now you need food. It's this endless hedonic, mind-numbing treadmill, that is not what life is. Life is the fundamental, unchanging, unborn energy that's observing those changes in you. But so many of us have lost sight of the joy and the bliss and the equanimity of being that we get really obsessed with just lighting up our pleasure centers and doing stuff, which is stupid. You just do it and, and then you die one day and you go, well, well that was fun, I guess. Right. And the problem is the more we light up those pleasure centers in a lot of cases, the less we're able to appreciate even those smaller things. I was having a talk with a Zen teacher earlier today, and we were talking about how being able to find some pleasure, enjoyment, value, and oneness in every day is really important, but that comes by looking at really ordinary things. But pleasure centers don't focus on ordinary things typically. That's exactly right. They turn the volume down on ordinary things. I recently, well, not that recently, it's been a couple of years, but um, stopped looking at pornography. And I noticed that the scintillating, and I don't just mean sexually, just the vibrancy of everyday life got turned up um, extremely high. And that is the best, like stopping pornography because it's bad is not appealing. Stopping any sort of disruption because it's bad, it doesn't work. It's willpower. It's what Richard Gore calls willpower Christianity. It's stupid. It's like a ego trip and it's beating yourself up. But stopping something like pornography because it brings the juice back to your life, that is compelling. And the more we get addicted to whatever it might be that um, lights up those centers, the more we're dulled to what I think Christ was referring to as the kingdom of heaven being here, the, the fullness of life the eternal moment being here and now, that gets turned down the more you just sort of rub the fun parts. I'm not even being crude. I just mean in your brain too, rubbing those parts, just like here's the sugar one, here's the booze one, here's the weed one, here's the movie one, just constantly doing that. And that's what so many of us are doing because that's what's being offered to us. When really, as maybe the Zen person was saying, 
finding the immediacy and the joy in traffic or in a delayed flight or in a bad meal, <laughs> a, a date that isn't clicking, if you can still get in touch with the light inside of you, with your base consciousness, that's where the only joy worth pursuing rests. That's not to say that I, I don't try and achieve things and make things and have relationships, but all of the things that I make and achieve and the relationships that I have hopefully are in the service of me becoming more in tune with what it is that I really am and what it is we really are. Yeah. Let's pivot for a second, although not very far, because you come from a sort of, I don't know if you'd use the word born-again Christian, but certainly evangelical Christian background, and, and you've really grown a long way out of that. In your new book, you say something that I really like, and you are talking about sin, and you spent a lot of your life being obsessed, as you were saying earlier, with things being bad. Don't do that because it's bad. Don't do that because... God will be mad. God will pull his love away. But ultimately, that's transformed you to a point where you look at it as sin isn't a bad thing. It's about being unconscious. That's right. Yeah. And that's Eckhart Tolle says that sin is unconsciousness. I can't remember if I say it in the book, but the way that I look at it now is that it's just static on the radio. It's something that's disrupting your connection and your connection to consciousness, which is God, which is life itself. So sins, whether they be stealing from your neighbor or being jealous or petty or lying, these are things that have been reduced to like you're upsetting a God who's going to torch you for those things later. I, I actually think it can happen a lot more immediately, that you're, you're sort of, you're only hurting yourself basically. And when you start to, as Ramdas says, it, when you start to clean up your game, you notice that you can lean into that connection that's available to you here and now, as opposed to waiting until you die, uh, which was what I was taught. So sin used to make my skin crawl. And now when I think about sin, I, I just think of it as static on the radio. It, you, you just want the signal to be coming in clean because that's where the juice and the life and the vitality and the excitement and the joy and the equanimity and the peace are. It's not so much um, for, it, it's not at all for an afterlife reward, or even to be perceived as a good person. It's just, it's something that pays out <laughs> immediately. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I love that idea. Static on the radio is a, is a really good way to think of it. Makes me uh, think of a song by a guy named Jim White, uh, who's really an amazing musician. He's written another hilarious song I think you would appreciate called God Was Drunk When He Made Me. <laughs> but he's deeply spiritual artist, beautiful, but static on the radio. Yeah, I've always heard of it as, you know, sin, it, missing the mark. Yep. I think that's a literal definition. Yeah, missing the mark. I like that. So let me ask you a question. You you referenced a minute ago, you use these words, but I want to kind of bring them up. And it's the, the tension between being and doing. You're somebody who does a lot, right? You've got a podcast, you've got HBO specials, you go on tour, you create and produce a lot. And yet being is also really important for you. And I'm curious how in your own life, you look at how to sort of balance those two things or how to integrate those two things maybe is a different way to look at it. But I'm interested in that tension for you. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a lifelong question, I suppose. Ramdas wrote a book about meditation. I forget what it's called. It has the word meditation in the title, but there are all these quotes in it. It's more of a, a handbook than it is necessarily like an original work. There's a lot of quotes in there. And one of them that I like, and I'm badly paraphrasing it, is they're like, when there's a task to do, doing the task is one-tenth of the task and maintaining your center is nine-tenths of the task. And I was like, I think that's right on. So that's why I was trying to be careful when I was like, I'm not against doing things. I'm an achiever. I come alive when I achieve. I I've tried to clean up psychologically why it feels so good for me to achieve. It used to be a little bit more egocentric and a little bit more selfish, but I still enjoy it. I still like making things. I believe that um, the creative energy behind everything that we call God is creative and therefore creating is sort of mirroring creation and mirroring the creator. I think it can be really beautiful. But that being said, you know, I'm sorry to keep quoting Ramdas so much. He's on my mind today. You know knowledge, but you are wise. <laughs> so I think that's such a key thing is you can know a lot of facts. You can know a lot of theology. 
it's sort of like comedy. You can understand why something is funny and how to write a joke or how to write a script, but like you have to be funny. That's that's actually the advice that Ramdas gave me about comedy. It was like just be funny. Don't do funny, be funny. And I actually think that's why people enjoy the live shows when they when they do is because I'm trying to be something with them. We're trying to create something together. It's also similar to lovemaking, I suppose. Like people can know what the mechanics of sex are, but like the nuance of being present in that act is what makes it truly can make it truly wonderful and divine. So I think we're a very obsessed with doing and achieving and letting people see what we're doing. You know, you can't go to the beach without Instagramming it. So people can validate that you were at the beach and that you looked so happy. But I mean, everybody knows that actually being happy at the beach, or they should know, is so much more important than if a thousand people like a photo of you looking like you were happy at the beach. <laughs> I'm not sure most people do know that a lot of time anymore. No, I don't think they do. And I know uh, maybe we sound like old men, but we were just on the beach uh, a couple days ago and my wife and I were doing our best without judgment, I mean, to lo- watch this young woman who for maybe, no exaggeration, 30 minutes kept getting up and then going back to her blanket, getting up, going back to her blanket, get- 30 minutes. Um, Because she was taking a photo with the timer of herself. And we just watched her with a mix of, you know, fascination. There was some judgment there, if I'm being honest. And also humor. Just like, look at what we've become is, you know, she was trying, oh, maybe I'll turn my butt out. Maybe I'll kneel. Maybe I'll mess my hair up. And then watching her go back and then clearly not like the photo and then do it again. Like she'd make a displeasure face. And I was like, it doesn't even matter. Like, you know, in the 80s, that would have been the most embarrassing thing you could have done. That would have drawn a crowd if someone was doing that. But now so much of reality is just doing life. It's non-resistance, basically, is, is trying to see the value and the juice and the life in everything. That's why I was saying traffic or a delayed flight. Most people are waiting. They're postponing their happiness. They're postponing their equanimity until things are going their way. But, you know, the this, this spiritual practice is trying to have that non-resistance. The, the way that I phrase it in the book is, is no matter what's happening, you say, yes, thank you to it. I think yes, thank you is, it's for me personally, one of my favorite mantras. It's obviously it's in English. It's not esoteric. It's not strange. But when, uh, when you are suffering, your brain, your lizard brain has absolutely no idea what to do when you don't participate with the misery, when you just say, yes, thank you, this too, this too will be the sacrifice that I make to hopefully being on a higher state. Even this discomfort, even this pain, even this frustration, even this depression, whatever it might be, you sort of sacrifice it through. You don't hold on to it. I I literally picture myself as, as like a cosmic tube and I'm feeling this angst and I pass it through and I go, this too, I'll put this on the on the serving tray for the universe as well. And I go, there I am, a human being really feeling torment right now. And I say thank you to this as well. Not just ice cream on the beach, because it's melting and it and you're lactose intolerant. <laughs> you know, it's it's not it's not working. Just just being here and saying yes to this right now, no matter what you're doing is the kingdom of heaven as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think that is in some ways the deepest teaching, right? Is to say, you know, I love that, yes, thanks. How to allow everything to be exactly the way it is. And the moments in my life that have blown my head off are when I somehow managed to truly wander into that neighborhood where I just kept saying yes, yes, yes. For the life of me, I still, you know, I can only find my way back there occasionally, but it, it is by somehow just truly letting go. And it's also, this is Sharon Salzberg says, it's the return. We all lose it. That's important to point out. We all lose it. And sometimes you even have to fake it. You know, sometimes I'll be touring around and I'll be doing press or something. And sometimes you have to get up really early for some morning show or something. And so it's like 4.30 and you went to bed at 12 the night before and you're so exhausted. This sounds a little Tony Robbins. I don't mean it to be like kind of... (laughs) sounding like, just just get psyched. you know. I, I don't mean that. I just mean, 
even in that time when I'm not feeling it, it can be even more powerful. And that's my point, is you're saying, yes, thank you, even to your not believing in the power of yes, thank you. You're like, I am a person not even believing that this will help me, and I'm grateful for even that. Jay Krishnamurti, who was a great um, Indian saint, he never really gave teachings until the end of his life. I heard this from Eckhart Tolle, but uh, he, he said, do you want to know my secret? And all of these followers were like, yeah, we want to know your secret. We've been following you for 40 years, waiting for you to give us a teaching. And he said, my secret is I don't mind what happens. And I was like, that's kind of the whole thing. That's what I think Jesus is saying when he says, look at the birds of the air. They're not worried about what they're going to eat or what they're going to do. I know human beings obviously have to do some planning, but there's a way to plan and be present while you're planning. Just plan while you're planning and stop planning when you're not planning. Easier said than done. But I mean, there's something to non-resistance. But your ego, for whatever reason, loves to exist. And when I say your ego, I mean the story of you. I mean your likes, your dislikes, where you're from, your sports teams, your favorite foods, all of these thoughts that build this mosaic that you think is you. And that mosaic wants you, for some reason, wants you to think that that is you. So it sort of possesses you. Um, and it's always trying to trick you. One of the techniques that it does is it tries to keep you upset. Because when you're upset, you exist. Like That's what I see when people are fighting about some asinine garbage you know, I was just at a, a baggage claim and, and the bags were coming around and then they started coming out on the other side. And this guy was like, now I got to go to the other side. I was like, it's a carousel. They go around <laughs> like you can just stand where you are. But what's going on there? That's the ego going like, get mad. Now they're coming out on the other side because when you mad, when you're mad, you're Gary. And when you're Gary, you exist and that's what the ego wants. It wants to be real, and it wants to convince you that you're real, and it wants to convince you that you do need that next thing, or you need the new iPhone, or you need the new, maybe that new movie or that new book that's going to get you where you need to be. Uh, it was Muji, I think, that said, given the choice between the journey and the destination, the ego will always choose the journey. And that's why we're constantly postponing, maybe not full enlightenment, but just a taste. How about just a taste? Can we just have a taste? Can we just have a moment, literally just a moment? Let's not even time it. Can you just see what it feels like? Try to stop thinking and stop believing your thoughts and stop believing the, the story just for a moment and be nothing and be free and be spacious. But we'll always go, maybe if I read that book, then I'll be free, even though, and I do this too, even though I know the book is just going to say what I already know, and it's going to say what the last one said. And at a certain point, I think this is Trungpa Rinpoche, is like, at a certain point, you have to stop reading the menu and just eat the meal. It's like my friend Michael Gunger said, it, it's not the feather that makes Dumbo fly. You know, at a, at a certain point, he loses the feather and he can still fly. At a certain point, we need to put these things down and go, I am it. I am it. What's looking out your eyes is ultimate reality, is ultimate truth, is the indwelling of God, is the spirit of God. You are it. Being can only recognize being. God is being and you are being and noticing being. That's a little, I'm not saying you're God. I'm saying you have the indwelling of God. And when you rest there, all of those things that I just mentioned, new iPhone, new movie, new book, they're all fine. You can do it. You just don't get lost in it as much. It's not static on the radio. It's just a dance you're doing. It's just play. It's just passing show. I think it was Kabir that, that said, I walk through the marketplace, but I'm not a purchaser. You can do it. That's what Christ means when he's in the world, not of the world. You can still do it. I, I love movies. I love books. I have the new iPhone. But like, I'm not as lost as I used to be in thinking, boy, when people see that I have the new iPhone they'll know that I'm a fancy showbiz guy. They'll probably think that I'm, I'm doing well. And then I'm going to use the new iPhone to take a picture of me at the beach. And then they'll really know that I'm a special guy that goes to the beach. I don't know. That stuff becomes less important. Right. I'd rather read a spiritual book than sit down and do a spiritual practice because it's hard. The brain just sort of takes over. And I know how to do that. I can read and I get a taste of what that piece is like versus when I'm just sort of running wild. But actually stopping and spending some of the time in trying to be is hard. It's these minds and these egos, they have a momentum at this point. 
There's a fair number of studies out there that show we're much more likely to get a good workout in the more convenient it is. If it's in our own house, most likely. If it's three miles away, our gym, more likely than if our gym is five miles away. And that's why I love the Peloton bike. I almost wrote a poem for this spot because I love this thing so much. But it is a wonderful cardio workout from your own home. And you can now try it for yourself with the new Peloton 30-day home trial worry-free. But let me tell you why I love the bike. First, I mentioned the convenience. There's a variety of workouts with all kinds of different instructor-led classes, live and on-demand, all music styles. Some of the instructors are, I just love them. They are great. Ginny and I differ on the instructors we love, but we both love instructors. And then one subscription gives you multiple profiles. So when I am uh, in Atlanta where the bike is, I'm on the bike. But when I come to Columbus, there's strength training workouts, there's indoor and outdoor running workouts, there's yoga that I do a lot. So it's really transformed the way I'm working out and has allowed me to work out in a way that's so much more convenient and making me get better, stronger workouts with less effort. So try it for yourself. You can learn more about their 30-day home trial at OnePeloton.com and get $100 off accessories with the purchase of the bike and use the promo code WOLF. Restrictions apply. That's OnePeloton.com and use promo code WOLF to get started. If you don't like the bike and it's not right for you, they offer free pickup, full refund, and it's totally worry-free. That's OnePeloton.com, promo code WOLF. Sleep. Is it something you struggle with? Lots of people do. Some people have trouble getting to sleep. Some people have trouble staying asleep. Some people have trouble with both. But in general, people are getting less sleep than before, and you can't go anywhere these days without hearing the sleep police tell you how important sleep is, which can cause you to be more stressed about your sleep. But Remrise can help. It's a personalized sleep solution that uses natural plant-based formulas to help calm the mind, relax the body, and get your circadian rhythm back on track for a better, more restorative sleep. And I told you that I had been having trouble sleeping. I had restless legs, and so I had started taking some over-the-counter sleep medications that I was having a difficult time totally shaking. Well, I have been using Remrise for over a month now, and I have been sleeping better than I have in a long time. I wake up refreshed. I don't have groggy side effects. And Remrise offers a sleep quiz that helps personalize the blend that you get. I use the at ease formula. So do what I did and check out Remrise today. Go to getremrise.com slash wolf, take their sleep quiz, and when you sign up, you'll get your first week of Remrise free. Just pay for shipping. You won't find an offer like this anywhere else. Get your first week of Remrise for free when you sign up at getremrise.com slash wolf. That's G-E-T-R-E-M-R-I-S-E dot com slash wolf. So yes, thank you is a great phrase for sort of bringing yourself back. Do you have any others for when you're kind of lost in ego and in self to help bring you back to a deeper place? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I wanted to say that because I'm like you and I love reading, and I even love writing about this stuff. I've sort of come to identify that as part of the practice, meaning I'm not a great for whatever that means. I'm not a great meditator. I do like meditating. It just so happens I meditated this morning. Sure. Great. See, I, that's sometimes that's the full benefit is getting to tell someone you did it. Hey, I meditated this morning. <laughs> so that's my point is, it's like sometimes it, it's what Ramdas taught me about karma yoga, meaning using your life. Karma just meaning the happenings of your life as your yoga, not stretching, but as your practice. So my friend, again, Michael Gunger, who wrote an incredible book called This, which really changed my life, which talks about a lot of this stuff. He was like, I don't really meditate, but I'm practicing all the time. And I was like, I, I relate more to that. Is that like, what does this moment have to tell me about the fundamental nature of the universe? And Ramdas also says, you know, the next teaching is always exactly right where you are. So whereas I can hear, maybe I'm wrong, but I can hear you doing something that I do too, which is like, boy, instead of just reading this stuff, Maybe I should just go on a, a contemplative walk or, or, or meditate or whatever. But that's sort of the yes, thank you of it. It's like, well, this is what's happening, and I'm going to do this consciously. And for better or worse, the mind, 
I think it's called Yana Yoga, using the mind to beat the mind. That's that's sort of my jam. I like it. I I, I don't uh, enjoy as much disavowing the mind directly. I like sort of using the mind to diffuse itself. So the more that I study, the more that I talk about it too, and the more that I write about it, that sort of has become a bigger part of my practice than just stillness. My my life can your life can have plenty of stillness. Just being on a plane and hearing the symphony of the present moment can be a very profound practice. It's just not as direct or as noticeable as sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed, which obviously is wonderful as well. But I just wanted to offer that just in case it made you feel better because it makes me feel better. (laughs) It is an interesting thing that I am challenged with is that, I mean, Zen, which is where I primarily study, is very much about, hey, like intellectual ideas just won't get you there. That said, what I've always really appreciated about the Hindu faith is how they do talk about there are different ways to this ultimate reality. And, you know, for some people, it's it's like you said, it's love. Some people, it's service. Some people, it's the mind. I really like that idea of there being different ways to the same place, depending on your temperament. Right. Yeah. You know, depending how you're wired. And for better or worse, I enjoy reading about it. I really enjoy listening to talks about it and and that'll bring me there. I'm happy to say over years it really does sort of infuse into your life and and become a program that's just running in the background um all the time. And then when I do meditate it is deeper, but that's just because my life is more still and that stillness came from a lot of study and that changed the way that I look at the world and made it a more contemplative mindset, which which is just saying yes to everything, by the way. I mean, that's that's a pretty quick, maybe not full explanation of what contemplation is. But Richard Rohr says, if you can allow anything, it will convert you. If you look at a rock and completely allow the rock, it will convert you. Because why should anything exist? But you're saying a deep, profound yes to a rock. He also says something really beautiful where he's like, People all run around claiming that they love Jesus, but it's like, try loving a tree first before you, before you jump right, to the right. king of kings. Can you love, as I just said, a delayed flight? Can you love that? We're so fast to just be like, I've done it. I love Christ. Really? How? Like, I, I, I get that you, maybe you do in your way, but there's, there's a ways to deepen our love and there's ways to give it more fullness. And the ways that I've found that are trying to love everything, love literally everything. I couldn't agree more. I've been doing this this other approach. There's a Zen saying that I won't get it right, but you know that something like Zen in motion is a million times more valuable than Zen, you know, sitting on a cushion. Right? It's that idea of like how do you bring it into the world? And there's this idea in Zen. It's called Samu. It's called work practice. So if you go on a Zen retreat or you live at a monastery, you're going to meditate part of the time. But then part of your day is you're going to do basic manual labor, and the goal is you do it with your whole heart, your whole presence, everything. Yeah. And that Samu is seen as a bridge. It's a way to go from, all right, I, when I sit down and close my eyes, I can keep these ideas in mind. And when I'm going a hundred miles an hour, I lose them. But this Samu, this work practice, these simpler things, Thich Nhat Hanh would talk about washing the dishes. When you're washing the dishes, wash the dishes. Those are a bridge. They're a way to sort of bridge the, the sitting down and then we get so busy we forget kind of thing. And I've really been exploring different parts of my life as Samu is a way to, to try and bring that consciousness more into all the parts of my life. Because I do think that's ultimately where life gets transformed. Meditating for 30 minutes a day is a great practice and it's important, but there's still 23 and a half other hours. And so how do we bring it into more and more of the day so it actually has a chance to transform us at a deeper level? Yeah, I think that's right on. And that's what I would call karma yoga. That's the idea. And, you know, Eckhart Tolle is on that tip too, where it's like, when you do things not as a means to an end, uh, and this will change your life today if you'd like it to. I hate brushing my teeth. I just I don't like that I'm in a meat suit that requires me to, <laughs> to, as my friend Chris Thayer says, polish the bones people can see. He has this great joke about that. <laughs> but I was like, so I don't like brushing my teeth. I'm a grown man. I don't feel like I should have to do it if I don't want to do it. But if I can get into that space, which sometimes I can, where you're really being present and watching 
just this bulbous, you know, dab of toothpaste coming out of this tube with your pressure onto these bristles and you smell the spearmint and you feel the warm water and, and you feel them just on the tooth that you're brushing, not thinking, well, I have to do this part, then I have to do that part, then I'll rinse, then I can go to bed, then I'll be happy. If you can just, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, just brush your teeth when you're brushing your teeth. And this is the key to love, by the way, too. I'm happy to share this, even though it might sound like a brag. Eric, as I called you, I was running late to this. So I was running late and I came in and I caught myself just kissing Val and sort of rushing to the back. And then I was like, fuck that shit. I stopped and we do this all the time. That's, and uh, that's why I'm sharing it. I think people would get value out of it. Just kind of, we just stared at each other. We just gazed at each other, just lovingly gazed at each other for what? Seven seconds? You know what I mean? When you're really looking at somebody, those seconds count. <laughs> it doesn't have to be very long. And you're just taking a moment to look, when you're looking at Val, look at Val. You know what I mean? And you're giving someone witness and you're giving them respect. Literally, that's what Richard Rohr taught me. Respect, you're re-looking, you're looking again. So the first time I was looking at her, I was just specting her. Then I respected her. You know what I'm saying? And and you just have that moment of love because I knew she was going to leave after this. When I'm done with this, she's going to be out running errands or whatever. And that was my moment. And I do that with my daughter and I do that with the friends of mine that are comfortable with that sort of thing. You're just taking a moment to be mindful. And in that moment, that's my meditation, which is another practice I, I encourage. If you, uh, not just you, Eric, but the people that are listening, if you have somebody that you feel comfortable with, just setting a timer for chimes, something gentle, uh, for like three, four minutes and just gazing at their eyes, there's no way uh, your ego can survive that. The first 30 seconds, it'll be so uncomfortable to your ego it'll take off. And then you're just being looking at being. You're just consciousness looking at itself. And it's trippy. Even if you've never done a psychedelic, uh, if you stare at somebody and just kind of breathe mindfully while you do it, you're not thinking about how you love them. You're not thinking about how special they are. You don't have to think anything. You can just compassionately gaze at someone. You'll have a mild and sometimes not so mild uh, hallucinogenic experience in my in my experience um, because the brain the the part of your brain that constructs reality doesn't really know what to do <laughs> <laughs> right and their face is going to change um, I write about that in my book Ramdas's face turned into my father's face turned into him as a kid but when I do it with Val obviously the juice with Ramdas is a little bit special I would say the intensity is is you know a lot higher. But with Val or, or my friends, it gets trippy, man. So I, I sometimes uh, catch myself always telling people to try, you know, if they're open to it or if they want to, if they feel the desire to try psychedelics. But then I'm like, you don't have to at all. You can just stare at someone uh, for four minutes. Unfortunately, in our society, people are more likely to take a pill or something because <laughs> <laughs> staring at someone is so weird. But uh, it's there. It's there for the taking. There was a crazy scientific study about that, where they put people together who didn't know each other and had them stare at each other like that, and some crazy proportion of them fell in love with each other. Wow! It brought this intimacy that was just so so strong. Yeah, I've seen it where they have Darren Brown. He did that thing uh, on Netflix. It was a he had a guy who was very very anti-immigrant um, staring with a uh, illegal Mexican-American immigrant. And they just, uh, they didn't tell them anything. They just had them look at each other for five minutes or so. And at the end, they're both crying and hugging each other. It's a profound thing. But that's my point. And, you know, Jack Cornfield had us do that. I was just at the Ram Dass retreat. He had us do that. And everybody's blown away. And he said something that was very profound. He was like, you know, you don't have to go to India <laughs> because that's what I'm saying. The ego would rather say when I go to India, you know, right. when I go to the ashram, when I go to the monastery, then I'll be spiritual. And the heart keeps saying, the part of you that's saying, then I'll be spiritual is spirit. 
<laughs> you know, the part of you that's noticing you saying, then I'll be spiritual, is spirit. It couldn't be any closer. It's what you are. I like to say, uh, I believe it's a paraphrase of Richard Rohr. I'm not sure. So much of what I say is a paraphrase of Richard Rohr. But he said, God doesn't love you. You are God's love. It's a very different perspective. Yes. It goes back to what we were saying of like, I've earned it. You know, God was my father figure, just like my real dad, who, who's a great dad. I'm not saying he, he did this more than normal. If I do well, he likes me. If I do bad, he might be frustrated or whatever. Uh, it's it's so much more liberal. I actually think God's love is so liberal, it would offend any ego. It's It's too much for anybody's ego to even consider. When you consider the the loving yes, that's what love is. It's a yes. It's this undulating yes. Animates everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It it's not it's not as pleasing as we'd like it to be. We want it to be, you know, Captain America beating the bad guy. But the truth is the whole thing is one thing. It's lawful, it's unfolding, it's figuring itself out, it's playing. There's no flaw in the system. I don't want to get out of my pay grade here, but I'm saying suffering itself is in the plan. It's in the plan. Creativity is one of those things that is so helpful in living a good life. It really contributes so much to us, but many of us just don't do it because either we think we're not good at it or we don't really know how. But 2020 could be a year where you could explore these new skills and get lost in creativity with Skillshare's online classes. Skillshare is an online learning community where millions of people come together to take the next step in their creative journey. They've got thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics like illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing, and more. I have explored their creative writing classes, and they are incredible. I particularly love the Creative Writing for All 10-Day Journaling Challenge with author Emily Gould, which is wonderful. But boy, there are so many great writing classes and other creative classes taught by true professionals that are doing this work out in the world. So Skillshare is a proud sponsor of The One You Feed, and you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com feed and get two months of free premium membership. Wow, that's a lot. And I'm telling you, these classes are world class. That's two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started and join today by heading to Skillshare.com feed. That's Skillshare.com feed. As I was preparing for this interview, I was also learning about something. I don't know if you're familiar with something called Process Theology by Alfred North Whitehead. It's basically what you're saying. First, it says there aren't things in the universe. There's just verbs. There's being. There's becoming. You know, and, and it sort of says that like God is sort of a novelty junkie. Like That's what God is doing, always trying to sort of hold the balance between chaos and stability to produce the most novelty. But when you said earlier, this idea of creation, when we're creating, it can feel like we are in touch with the energy of the universe, because that feels very fundamental to the energy of the universe for me. Like the universe just seems to want to be and create and make and grow. Yeah. Well, that's in Michael Gunger's book. He, he's like, uh, which is called this again, he sort of likens the universe to a child being thrown up in the sky by its father going again, again, again. And what's weird is you see this quality in human beings, even the horrible bits, we're sort of fascinated with all of it. We're sort of endlessly intrigued with figuring out the limits of ourselves. And obviously there's mourning and, and, we, and compassion and love and kindness and service is the point of life. That's the one you feed, right? But every bit of it, look, look at our fascination with, you know, 
murder documentaries, all these things. Like my point is, is like as a thought experiment, I've been thinking what my heaven would be. And, you know, one of the heavens would be just kind of God mode uh, in this universe, meaning I can swipe to any time, any place, past, present, future, and I can experience what it feels like to be anything, Mm. meaning I could feel what it feels like to be a field of wheat or the ocean. I mean, imagine how much time you would spend just being the ocean. I think that would be pretty incredible. Or the cosmos or Saturn or what it would feel like to be Trump or what it would feel like to be a neglected housewife. I want it all when I'm in that place. I want it all. Given enough time, if it's eternal, there's not a situation that I wouldn't want to slip into and just go, whoa, that's what that was. That's what that was. That's what that was. And again, I don't want I don't want to sound like a nihilist or somebody that's just like, we need to work to bring peace. We need to work to bring compassion. And I can have a part of me, not Pete necessarily, but my base still consciousness can understand given eternal time and eternal possibilities, infinite possibilities, there isn't a game that I wouldn't play. Think about that. That's in Michael Gunger's book. If you were infinite, what game wouldn't you play? Right. And that's actually pretty trippy because it actually includes even the the things that I've dismissed as ridiculous. Because I said that to Michael. I was like, well, that means that there is a heaven where we are all just in robes with wings. You know, even <laughs> that's so silly. I'm like, if I have infinite time and infinite everything and infinite possibilities, then that'll be one too. We'll play that game too. Which one wouldn't we play? We'd play them all. We'd play them all. I love that idea. I agree with you too. If I could have like one superpower, I think that's the one I would have to be able to inhabit anything and see what it's like. And I think it points to a really useful tool. And we talk about like, how do I say yes to this moment or how do I inhabit it? I think curiosity is like one of the the most potent tools we have. Like, what's this like? If we can become curious about what a state is like. Now, again, there only are states that we usually can experience, but curiosity for me is a great way to move from my small, contracted, emotionally suffering self to a broader perspective. What's this actually like? That's right. Well, if God is creative, then God is certainly curious, which is interesting because, you know, growing up, I used to like to play those games, like if God's all knowing, right? I guess if you had to put it in those terms, I think God is outside of time. The concept of God, which we can't possibly house in our brains, is obviously outside of time. So there's not necessarily a deficit in this energy, Um, but if we were to make it linear, I would be like, God is finding out, (laughs) God is figuring out, God is relationship, God is adventure, God is pain, God is pleasure, God is loneliness, God is ecstasy. And that is the best superpower. That is the one that we seem to have chosen. We've, we've decided as Alan Watts would say to play hide and seek with ourselves. I'm going to pretend to be this comedian in, in Hollywood and, and you'll pretend to be a podcast host and you right now, Eric, you know what it's like to be you and I know what it's like to be me. So we can only do it one at a time right now, but the, the whole thing is, is dipping in and out of everything. So it knows what a field of wheat feels like. It knows what a mother whale feels like. It knows what a star feels like. It knows what a black hole feels like. That is what I think is going on here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That makes me think of another phrase that you've used that I wanted to ask about, which is, when in doubt, zoom out. Because I think this is such a really powerful little phrase to use spiritually and, and, you know, even on a more rote emotional basis. Yeah. You asked earlier what the little mantras I have are, and that's certainly one of them. Let me think of something I was frustrated at recently. It was probably something travel related, like um, we're at the airport, they didn't print a boarding pass for our baby, so we didn't have one. So they were stopping us at the gate, right? And and that that can be frustrating because you're already bag all these bags and a baby and stuff, right? and now they're stopping you. And it's easy to get caught in that moment and be frustrated. But when you zoom out, so when in doubt, zoom out, you're zooming out and looking at the planet and you're like, there's two smaller than ants on this rock and they're mad about getting on a 
tube to go to another part. Like it, nothing makes sense. Nothing, <laughs> nothing is valid when you look at the whole. Yeah. Like your little story, that's the Indian idea. That's the, it's the passing show. It's, it's my daughter's name is Leela, which means the play of the universe. It's all play. And it actually goes back to what I was saying. The task is one tenth and maintaining your center is nine tenths. So in that element of karma yoga, Getting my daughter, which we did, it was no problem, on the plane is one-tenth. Me not getting lost in the illusion is nine-tenths. It's so much more important for me to go like, we are on a planet and some of us forget. Like the concept of infinity is not just in holy books. It's, it's around us. It's where we're swimming. It's where we're floating. It's what's happening around us. It's expanding infinity, which is a paradox. And that is a paradox confirmed by science. We are in a paradox, expanding infinity. And that, when you consider it, makes your delayed flight or your traffic or even your heartbreak or whatever it might be. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying give yourself the gift of looking at it from a cosmic perspective. And not in a sad way, not in like, who cares, I'm going to die, I'm just an ant on a rock. In the free way, let it liberate you and go, even though my story is small and doesn't deserve my full attention, what I am is what I'm looking at when I zoom out. You are home. You are born into this world. That's an Alan Watts quote. You don't come into this world. You actually come out of this world. Just like an apple comes off a tree. You were born home. You're not a visitor here. So you are being, and your story is not the point. The ice cream on the beach isn't the point. Your frustration isn't the point. Look at everything that's happening and know that you are a dignified, inherent part of it. And that's a peaceful thought. That is. I love that perspective. Elsewhere in the book, you quote, uh, this just made me laugh. Lots of parts of the book made me laugh. It is a, it's a great book. Thank um, you. Listeners. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's deep. It's profound. But you're talking about uh, Joseph Campbell and you're talking about this idea that God is a metaphor for a mystery that transcends all categories of human thought, which is one of my favorite quotes. But then you go on to quote something that the road manager for ACDC told you, yeah. which it makes me laugh that this is where you heard it. Yeah. Um, God is the name of the blanket we throw over the mystery to give it shape. Yeah. And when I've read that or, or said this on stage, it gets a, a big laugh as I go, shouldn't I have learned this in Sunday school? <laughs> right. Why am I learning this from the road manager for ACDC? The idea that God is without a concept. God is beyond language. As Joseph Campbell said, God is a mystery that's beyond the categories of even being and non-being. It's, it's beyond language. It's not something you can know. It's, it's that by which you know anything. That which does the knowing is the peace of God that's inside of you right now. Right. That that does the hearing. This is the Upanishads. Not that which the eye can see, but that whereby the eye can see. Know this to be Brahman the eternal, right? Know that to be God. So it's the mechanism by which you can hear me, not what you can hear, the mechanism that is hearing, that is eternal, that is God. But as Richard Rohr says, we can't fall in love with an energy. You can try, maybe you can, but most of us need a symbol. So God created man, man returns the favor, man closes the circle and makes God. I'm not saying God doesn't exist. I'm saying the symbols that we have pointing to God aren't God. They're, they're road signs pointing to a destination. And as Richard Rohr says, we're, we're also busy worshiping the road signs instead of going to where the signs are pointing um, and experiencing where the signs are pointing and, and becoming one and feeling and intuiting where the signs are pointing. You can't necessarily know it or write it down, but you can quiet down to a point where, you, where your boundary sort of disappears and you become one with it, right? That's that's the only game in town. Nailing it down, it's it's not going to happen. That was a line, a, a joke I cut from the book. I was like, you can try and nail your God down, but it has a tendency to die and resurrect on you. Like it's going to go away. <laughs> like you can't do it. Your ego wants to know and know that it knows. Right. You can't know that you know, but you can experience it. That's the good news. You can experience it and you can be it. But uh, when it comes to explaining it, it's always going to be, um, it's going to come up short. But the idea that God is a, a blanket we put over a mystery to give it shape, now we have something to talk about. Now you and I can meet 
and we can talk about God. And unfortunately, people can abuse God, people can uh, rape and kill and and control and suppress and shame and embarrass and humiliate and restrict people in the name of this thing. But what we're trying to do, it sounds like, is we're trying to say what we're talking about is a metaphor for a mystery. And we all can agree on a mystery. We don't have to debate the existence of a mystery because we are steeping in a mystery. And if God is not a being, but God is being itself, we don't have to debate the existence of God because here we are, we are being. So we, we, can, we can skip the part where we go, do you believe in this symbol or do you believe in this symbol? Do you believe in this blanket or do you believe in this blanket? As Eckhart Tolle says, no one can own the concept of being. It's, it's a freer way to discuss God. And, you know, doing my podcast for 400 some episodes, no one wants to talk about God for the most part, but everybody wants to talk about being. If you, if you can change the vocabulary slightly and just be like, what are we doing here? How are you experiencing being in that one? Because I'm in this one. And, and, and we're all a little bit confused. We're all a little bit lonely. We can all get a little bit scared. We need to we need to come together and, and figure it out. And uh, we don't ever need to agree on a blanket, but uh, it's nice to agree that there is something to put the blanket on. <laughs> yeah, agree 100%. I think those are ways of talking about these things that are so much more inclusive and just easy to, it, you know, it, it's a bigger tent. I feel like I've been quoting Zen things all episode, which I don't normally do, but there's a Zen saying, like, if you're trying to control a cow, like, give it a bigger pasture. You know, it's a similar idea. Like, you know, th this is a big tent that everybody can find their way into and, and hopefully have a discussion. Another metaphor for God that I know you, you love Richard Rohr. We've had him on the show a couple of times from his latest book. He said, anything that draws you out of yourself in a positive way for all practical purposes is operating as God for you at that moment. And that has been so powerful for me as an idea. And this idea that expansion versus contraction feeling like for me as a very simple feeling metaphor for where am I? If everything feels like it's contracting and closing down, I'm usually moving away from God, if we want to use that word. And as I open and expand, I feel like I'm moving towards God. It's a, I feel it very viscerally. Yeah, that's right. Well, Richard is a, a big Thomas Merton fan, and, and they're both very good at pointing people away from what Merton called the false self or the small self yep. and to your real self. I make this point in the book that everybody always says that the most important question you can ask is, who am I? And I always took that to mean like, know your preferences, um, know your favorite films, know your favorite car, know your favorite clothes. So when you die, and this is the joke I make in the book, you can be satisfied like everyone knew how I took my coffee. Like that's who you were. <laughs> Like that is, that is such a lie. That is, that's such a disappointing interpretation of what is the most important question, which is who am I? But it's not who are your thoughts. That's why I was tempted for, with that bumper sticker. Don't believe everything you think, right? That's a, that is a good bumper sticker, but I'd rather just say it on podcasts than have it on my car. <laughs> but like who is observing you ask? the question. And that's the real you. And anything that draws you away from the construct and from the story, and if we want to use kind of salacious language or, or crazy language or bold language, you can say the lie, the lie that you feel it like a burden, like bags you have to carry, who you're supposed to be, yes. who you're expected to be, who you want to be. Even evolutionarily, I want to be nice so people give me resources and give me love and food and I keep my job. It's the story that we have to perpetuate and we all perpetuate. And some stories are helpful, you know, being kind or whatever. But behind them, there's always the unborn, never born, never dies, impartial witness, which is what I'm trying to draw people to in the book. Not just because it's a fun thought experiment or it's not because it's a fun belief. That's sort of the point of the book is I don't really give a, a crap what you believe. Like my whole life, it was, what do you believe? What do you believe? Now I'm like, who is it that does the believing? Who is watching you believe this? When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was a Republican. I was this, I was that, whatever. And now I'm uh, more liberal. Okay, so who watched the change? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the only game in town. Right. What didn't change? What didn't change? 
that question is such a powerful question. What stays the same? That's it. You know, what stays the same? And it's, That's the indwelling of God. Yeah. That's why we say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I would change it to say Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't, just me personally, we, we'll never know if this is true or not. I like to think that Christ, Jesus was fully human and that he did change, that he did grow, that he did learn, um, that, you know... <laughs> Uh, that's just how that story has the most juice for me, was that he evolved, that he changed and grew and learned, because that's what it is to be human. And then he made the swap to Christ. He became realized. He realized that the whole time he wasn't sweet baby Jesus of Nazareth, learning carpentry or learning uh, how to speak Aramaic. <laughs> you know, he was the witness. And the witness is the witness is the witness. My witness is your witness. Mine is just in this one and yours is in that one. And that one's in a bird and that one's in a stone, like different levels of consciousness. I've come to realize that people are either interested in talking about molecules or they're not. But when you realize that science is sort of backing the idea that everything is just made of these tiny little bits, you see that everything really is one thing, that it is really just television static. And this pattern of television static thinks it's Pete, but really the television static that's making me is the television static making the, the desk and the computer and the microphone, and it's making you, and it's making my dog, and it's making my baby, and it is one thing, and that's what Christ consciousness is. And that's why he says, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. He's saying, there's no one in the other boat, as Ram Dass would say. It's just us. It's just us. Right, right. Here I go with another Zen phrase, but I love the Zen phrase that says, not one, but not two. It's like, well, yeah, we are separate. Yes, I am not you, and yet we're also not two. You know, we're not one, but we're not two. I yeah. love that idea. And I guess it kind of comes back to, uh, and this maybe is a place for us to kind of wrap up with something else that you quote Joseph Campbell saying, which I think is a is a nice analogy or a metaphor, which is when the light bulb stops identifying with the bulb and starts identifying with the light. Yeah, I love that. Because we should, I, I'm a believer in my own path, that we should honor our incarnation. That's what Ram Dass would say, honor your incarnation. It's like we can get a little bit lost in pushing away my peatness, right? And now I enjoy my peatness. I'm just less attached to it. Yeah. which is what freedom is. That's being... So Richard Richard Rohr is so good at showing us that mystical Christianity has been saying what a lot of people think is so new agey the whole time, that right. the whole idea of being fully human and fully God isn't just a pledge for Christ for us to just go like, wow, there was one guy who did it, and uh, and our job is to make sure other people believe that he did it. And uh, the point that I'm trying to make in the book is, is go and do likewise. When I grew up, that would have sounded like blasphemy. Um, I do have humility. Richard Rohr says the most important things you can have in spirituality are humility and patience. And another mantra that I use every day is I am willing, meaning when I have a bad thought, like a, a small-minded thought, if I'm judging, if I'm being nasty, um, I just say I am willing because sometimes I just need I need intercession. I need something bigger than me to help me with that. But my willingness and my patience and my humility, I think, are the ingredients that hopefully can lead to change. Other than, alongside my me trying my damnedest, but let's be honest, me trying my damnedest doesn't really work. <laughs> I sometimes just need um, patience and humility. Um, but that being said, I don't think that's uh, blasphemy at all. I think Jesus was saying let's go, let's, let's do this. You know, he's, he's trying to wake you up to the idea of not one, not two. Yep. You can play the story of Jesus, but you should know that you're the Christ and you can play the story of Eric and I can play the story of Pete. It's all fine. We don't have to be renunciates. We can, we can play the game, but as Alan Watts says, when it's all done, we're going to take off our masks and we're going to go backstage and uh, we're going to love the hero for being a good hero. We're going to love the villain for being a good villain. And we're going to say, what a relief. <laughs> like, it was just a show. Right, right. Well, I think that is a great place for us to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. My pleasure. I love this talk. Thank you. Yes. 
If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.